Hey everybody, welcome to the new year and welcome to the Cast. I'm your host, Charlie Barons, and this, of course, is the podcast where we talk to people for and or from the Midwest. We are presented by Jolly Good Soda, best gosh darn soda around. I say that every week, but I actually mean it. Today, my guest is Cam F. Awesome. He is a boxer. He's a Golden Glove winner. He's featured in the 2017 Netflix boxing documentary, Counterpuncher. He is also an inspirational speaker. He now tours the nation, educating businesses and students about cultural awareness. And he's a great guy. We had a very fun conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. And this is kind of a cool uh, podcast because this, you know, I've said before, uh, but a lot of these episodes are inspired by all of you, the listeners. That's what I really enjoy about the Cripes cast. It, you know, I, I feel like we're building this together and this interview was inspired by uh, Joshua Jones who sent in the idea of having uh, KMF on a while back in September I think so big thanks Josh for for doing that uh, hope everyone had a good week I had awesome awesome probably one of the best weekends I've had in a while I got to go to the Packers game uh, with my dad and I went with Max uh, my producer and, and we shot on Lambeau Field before the game uh, a video about the Lambo leap with Roy Butler. And uh, so that was fun. It was very cold. It was so cold. I forgot to do some of my lines in the video. Bummer. Cause it would have been, it would have been really funny if I remembered those lines, but that's okay. It's a good video regardless. So we shot um, that video on the field before the game. Then we went out and we had a tailgate with a couple fans who got the uh, Midwest survival guide. And then we did this, you know, if you were, I think I mentioned it on this podcast, actually. If you were like the uh, 36th or the 84th or the, the first responder back, you could come and uh, do a tailgate with us. So we had tailgate with the winners. It was a ton of fun. My dad was grilling brats and everyone was like crowded around the grill, you know, because it was so cold that uh, the grill was like it was the only heat we had. I do not throw a very professional tailgate, unfortunately. I, you know, I, I throw a very Wisconsin tailgate. It's, hey, do you remember the grill? Yeah. The brats? Yeah. The bloodies? Yeah. How about chairs? Nope. Forgot the chairs. But I did remember the beer. So, uh, you know, it wasn't my best performance, but everyone had a good time. Uh, I had a blast. Of course, the Packers uh, not only beat the Vikings, but also, uh, knocked them out of the whole playoff situation. So that, oh, geez, it doesn't get any better than that. I'll tell you that right now. Uh, anyway, so that, that was just amazing. Just wanted to keep you in the loop on that. What else? Oh, we got shows coming up in Buffalo and Syracuse next week. And we added another show in Milwaukee the, the week after, two weeks after that. So you can get those tickets, cripescast.com. And what else am I supposed to tell you? Oh, yeah, follow the Cripescast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You know the whole deal there. Okie dokes, and I think that's everything on my list. So here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Here's my conversation with Cam F. Awesome. How'd you get your start in boxing, first and foremost? Uh, so I I didn't make any of the teams in like middle school or ninth grade in high school. And after ninth grade, you kind of stopped trying. Uh, <laughs> one of those deals. And yeah. uh, I wanted to I wanted to like get in shape to so I can stop being bullied because yeah, these call me bosoms. Bosoms. And, that was your that was your nickname, huh? Yeah. So I figured if I joined the boxing gym, I'd lose weight and uh, get a date to prom. And that I didn't get a date to prom. I got friend zoned. 
<laughs> yeah. So you got friend zoned, but yeah. did, did but you get the the boxing part worked out? I quickly realized that from the outside, you think it's a tough person sport, but it's not. It's a smart man sport, and if you can be smart enough, you can win. And I figured out a formula how to win. Uh, so I just defi- decided to fight at the heaviest weight class. So I fought at super heavyweight. I'm like six two, but I was fighting dudes like six seven, six eight. And I figured if I can just not get hit and be in better shape than my opponent, because like all those big dudes just think they're going to knock anyone out. So uh, my plan was just to like get in really good shape and run around the ring until they're tired and then start to attack them. Uh, uh, and yeah, it, it was like a cheat code. Uh, so I became uh, the number one boxer within the first two years. That's of boxing. crazy. I made it to the 2008 Olympic trials my within two years of boxing, but I lost there. Uh, but I did win, like, I won nationals in uh, 2008, 9, 10, and uh, 2011. Uh, and that that was a cool experience because I grew up in a small neighborhood in New York. And then, like, I was able to, like, travel around the country. I got to fly on a plane for the first time. Got to leave the country. Got a passport. So that was, like, a whole mind-blowing experience in itself. Uh, but... While all this is going on, I know in my mind, I'm like, I don't really like want to be a boxer, but I do like experiencing all the stuff. So I'll just continue to box. But I have no aspirations of like becoming a professional fighter. I just enjoyed that it allowed me to see the world. So when most guys win a national championship or two, they just turn pro because they'll make a lot of money. I decided to just keep winning them. And I did that for about 10 years. Wow. So t- you just, you didn't envision that happening at all when like, what was the point where you were like, all right, I'm doing this to get a prom date. And then it was like, oh, I can, I can keep doing this. Was it winning the first title or was there a moment where you like, I got this. After I was sparring in the gym and I realized if I just paid attention and I just focused all my energy, I didn't get hit. And I was like, and that figured out if I fought and didn't get hit, I would just win. So a lot of my yeah. fights are boring, but if you don't hit me at all, you can't win. Right. Right. Uh, and, and I realized I was like, it, it felt like a cheat code. I just have to yeah. make sure I was in like really good shape. And I realized the more I fought, the more comfortable I was during the fights. I am, I'm an extremist, like personality wise. I just, I go hard in a direction So I just like hopped in my Prius and I just drove from city to city fighting anyone, no coach. I was just like, I'll fight anyone anywhere. And there's been a few times I was like, I was in, I was in Texas driving to Minnesota and someone saw on Facebook and I stopped off in, in Des Moines and fought a dude. And, uh, I got a free hotel that night. So it was cool. Yeah. But fighting that much and being that comfortable in the ring was such an advantage i didn't realize it so i was i was the most experienced fighter and i was the guy who's been around the longest so it's easy to dominate yeah and then how did that transition into what you're doing today so when i started boxing uh when i when i got cool when i here's where i look at it when i thought i got cool and i was like I am a person that I would have wanted to look up to. I felt like it was my duty to go back to schools and I would go to schools and I would speak about bullying. Uh, So I'd take over the gym class for an entire day 
So I get every student and I would talk about bullying and uh, confidence. And I would try to get kids to join one of the, because uh, I would always do it in the hoods. And there's always like uh, an inner city uh, boxing gym for free that no one knows about, uh, similar to the one that I went to. And I was 16 when I first went and it was, I was 16 when I first heard about it. It's been in my neighborhood my whole life. So I would tell kids about the boxing gyms, but it would take all day. So I'd be there from like first period to the, the whole end of the day. So I started just doing them as school assemblies. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. And and that was your first foray into this uh, kind of public speaking and, and sort of the persona that you've created. Um, did you did you have struggles though? Like when when you first went, I remember I went into my uh, sister's, my sister's a teacher. I went into her class and I started doing a presentation. These were middle schoolers. I was like, dang, I'm already getting roasted by these kids, you know? They're cold, they're I cold. Know. I figured out why. They They are old enough to know what feelings are but they haven't developed empathy. So they're ruthless. Oh, like, wow. Yeah. They, they will see the, say the meanest things. They're the scariest <laughs> people on the planet. Coming from a guy who's been in the ring with six, eight fellas. <laughs> That's interesting. When do we develop empathy? Uh, I think I developed empathy through actually probably like a girlfriend, my girlfriend. Like I didn't really gain the, I guess I never really, no one sat me down and had the talk of, of the conversation of feelings, yeah. like to even put it to a language. I also try to teach, actually it's, uh, it's a curriculum, uh, social emotional learning to students, because I think that's an important part. Like no one really, we just tell them kids like be nice to one another, but what does that mean? I think we should start putting language to feelings. When you're uh, going in and, and putting sort of this language to feelings, I mean, you're talking about a bunch of issues other than just bullying. You're also talking about sort of cultural awareness and diversity and acceptance. What inspired you to choose that as sort of a, a focus? Uh, so what inspired that was after George Floyd was murdered, I knew what we wanted. We wanted change. I knew when we wanted, we wanted it now, but I wanted to figure out specifically what that meant and what that meant to me. So I, I, I started to read a lot of books to see about the issues, why everyone was marching. And, and I've always kind of known, but I wanted to actually read a book and learn about, learn about the issues. And I realized everyone should make a difference in the way they believe they can. And I realized that I'm a, a youth speaker and I've, I've been speaking at hundreds of schools across the country and 79% of educators are white females, but our students aren't. So I thought I realized there's an area for me to speak to, to lead professional development workshops for educators to help create better multicultural educators through unconscious bias trainings. That's kind of what led me into speaking to moving away from youth speaking into uh, adults. And can you give us a few, uh, maybe things that you go in with, because I'm sure whatever teachers are thinking, uh, is probably the rest of us. Are there, are there certain things that you start off with and say, maybe you've experienced this, that is that unconscious bias. Yeah. So that's, that's the crazy part about, uh, speaking on this topic. It's like, a, people are scared to have this conversation sometimes right. or everyone's like on edge, but what I do is I speak about culture and there's no right or wrong with culture. Culture is just a way of life. And I just speak about different ways. Just basically also I speak on intent versus impact. So a lot of people would say like, Oh, I don't see color or I'm colorblind. Right. Yeah. Now 
I share the intent behind that statement. Someone might mean uh, I, I'm not going to treat anybody different because of the color of skin. And that's their intent. But the problem is like, no one cares about your intent. Everyone cares about the impact. Right. So I'm black. I've experienced certain things because I am black. I am who I am because of the things I've experienced. If you can't see the color of my skin, you can't see my experiences. If you can't see my experiences, you can't see me as a person. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, if no one has this conversation, how are you going to know? Right. And I think especially after in the aftermath of George Floyd, you saw a lot of people, well-intended again, uh, make statements online or this to the effect of I don't see skin color or whatever. And they, they're trying to say that. Uh, but then they get called wrong, rightfully so, yeah, um, you know, because as you just mentioned, if you don't see that I'm black, you don't understand that I come from a different set of experiences and all. And then I think people clammed up and they were like, I don't want to say anything, you know, which. Yeah. Yeah. Also the the wrong response. You don't want them to not say nothing, but they don't a lot of. And I'm speaking from experience because I've experienced part of this. You want to be productive with it but not silent, you know? And it's in this social media age, I think a lot of times that's when these things happen, uh, the terrible things happen with, uh, you know, the police with respect to the black community. You, you want to jump on and say something, but then I think it creates this white noise of everybody saying something, yet it having no meaning, you know? You yeah, there's so much going on and there's so much to say, but you only have a limited amount of characters. Right. That is a whole different type of conversation than I try to have it uh, during my workshops. Like <clears throat> you realize when you have a disagreement with someone online and then you have that same conversation with them in person and it's a completely different conversation. It's I feel like sometimes as people, we forgot to have how to have conversations and how to connect with one another. So with with the with my workshops, what I try to do is I try to do a little bit of talking but I try to have conversations and I like to say I'm a lifeguard and I allow the audience to swim in the conversation of culture. So if different topics come up, we can have a discussion, but there's no right or wrong answer. Right. To bring up what you said before about middle schoolers not having empathy or, or high schoolers or whatever. I think social media has become this big high school because social media has, has taken uh, social is not really a great word for social. It's anti-social media in a lot of ways. Yeah. It lacks that empathy because you're looking at a computer screen. I don't have empathy for a, a, a handle, you know, or, yeah. uh, or whatever. I have empathy for a human being. And we, we lose that when these screens come up. So how uh, what what have been your takeaways in the aftermath of the George Floyd tragedy and then um, how you've gone around and spoken to people, what would have been some of your takeaways? I guess there's so many takeaways because I get to have, have the honor of having this tough conversation on a daily basis. And I call it tough conversation. It's not really tough to me, but for me, but it's tough for a lot of people. I realize there's a lack of communication and there's a lack of exposure. And because there's a lack of exposure, there's a lack of perspective. I think we're too divided. So Martin Luther King's I Had a Dream speech, there's a line in there. It says, uh, I have a dream that little black boys and little black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and little white girls as brothers and sisters. I believe he was alluding to the Fair Housing Act, which was passed a year after he was assassinated. He wanted us to be amongst each other. I think we're doing him a disservice right now. And I think we need to unite. And that's a very generic way to say it. 
But I think what we need is we need to have these conversations. But the only place you can have these conversations really is at work in these diversity workshops. Mm -hmm. Yeah, face to face, allowing people to uh, ask the questions perhaps they've been afraid to ask. And more so what what you were just talking about is that I was just having this conversation with somebody else. uh, But, you know, you have racism. But racism is bred from, as you're saying, that lack of familiarity, that lack of um, exposure, really, you know, and people are always afraid of or misunderstanding that which they don't know. And when we've created these societal structures of churches being separate and uh, neighborhoods being separate and the redlining and all that sort of stuff that's come on through generations, it's really no surprise why we've we're in the place we are today to a large degree. So it's it's this kind of work that, you know, is helping combat that. Are there recurring themes that that you've seen in this? Like maybe like the thing you see at every one of these that comes up um, that that is worth mentioning here? Yeah. So one of them is like so for me in high school or in elementary school, every every year in school in February, they sat me down like because it was Black History Month. And they're like, you're the strong African-American boy. The blood of Martin Luther King runs through your veins. You march with Malcolm and you sit with Rosa and all that jazz. But my mom was born in England and my dad was born in Trinidad. Uh, I'm black, but I'm not African-American. Yeah. And a lot of white people are like, we don't know what to call. We don't know what to say. We're all individual people. Everyone has their preferences. But what I found is I just call people black. I think uh, so. I have a I call her my Puerto Rican grandma. Uh, my Puerto Rican mom, uh, Mama D, she always calls me Negro. And I asked her one day why, because I, I just thought she just called me the N word in Spanish. And I was like, why do you call me Negro? And she's like, it means black. And I, in her culture, black is interchangeable with beauty, with beautiful. Uh, so I love to be called black, but I'm not African-American. But if someone calls me African-American, I'm not going to have a meltdown or anything. Most of the time, to be honest, I don't even correct people. Right. But if I were to correct someone, I hope it doesn't ruin their day. It's not that big of a deal. It's like everyone's so afraid of ever being wrong that it feels like the stakes are so high. It's like, no, it's not that big of a deal. Right. Yeah. And I'll speak from from that perspective. I mean, I I've always been, you know, very hesitant or I found myself hesitant to say one thing or another in fear that I'm using the wrong terminology or whatever. And part of that comes from, you know, it's my responsibility to like educate myself on the the right way to say things and phrase things. But then to a certain degree, it's like you can only do so much, but you got to get out there and and try and, and communicate. And if you slip, it doesn't mean you're, you know, a racist. It means you're imperfect and you're human, but you just got to get through that. But I think right now there's so much fear around even the conversation that we're kind of in this Stacy's a little bit. Um, yeah. So, and I don't think social media, again, I don't think that uh, helps it because, you know, you, you say one thing wrong there and there's a lot of, you know, keyboard warriors out there ready to, you know, to uh, bring you out to the public uh, uh, shaming things. So, how do yeah, we, I'm not a fan of canceling. How do we change the culture uh, from one that is predominantly online? How do we bring some of the stuff that you're doing in these face-to-face uh, deals into our 
our interactions, which do happen to mostly be online. We're drawn to what gets the most attention. Mm -hmm. I bet you have friends who post pictures of their dogs and no one clicks like on it. So you never see it. You just see all the negative things, but there's so much good going in the world right now. Like, but we never get shown it. And sometimes it just kind of beats you down Mm -hmm. and you just feel like everything's burning and you look online and everyone's negative. And then you to somehow filter yourself into that and you become more of a negative person too. What I would suggest for people to do is choose something that they really like. I, for this experiment, have done golden retrievers. <laughs> and I go through Instagram and I search for golden retrievers and I just like random golden retrievers. And every time golden retrievers come up, I like them. And now my feed is mostly dogs <laughs> because you are what you search. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's 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 a quote to take out of this. You are what you search. It's true. It's that kind of th- we're in these bubbles, these social media bubbles, and there's not a ton of bridges. But those kinds of things, simple dogs. I mean, that those are bridges to other people who like golden retrievers. You know. Yeah. 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 And uh, I think people, what people should do, and I, I won't even say people. This is what I'm doing with my life. I haven't figured out life yet. So if you like my advice, you can take it. Every fifth post on Instagram is an ad, which means 20% of your timeline is monetized. So you should look at it as real estate. What value are you getting out of those that other 80%? I'm very picky about who I follow because I'm because you are your timeline and that's the stuff that's going to get downloaded into your mind. Like, and I just want to see happy stuff. And I have family members that I love. I love them to death, but they're very opinionated people. And Cam doesn't want that on his timeline. It's <laughs> <laughs> getting in the way of the golden retrievers. Yeah. Do you think it's it's sort of becoming more deliberate with what we choose and, and that can help um, solve it? Are there other things that uh, you see and that, that you'd recommend? I would say if you don't plant if you don't purposely plant seeds, weeds will grow. So mm. if you don't tend your your social media, if if you just let it go, the things that pull me in, oh, they're drama. They're things that I, none of my business. When you look in the ad for too long, they realize it catches your eye. Uh. And you'll start to see more of that. So you have to be conscious, super conscious of your social media use. When you feel like it's starting to become a job, mm-hmm. like being on social media, you start to do it less. Yeah, and what you do bring up a really good point there, and this is in that uh, uh, social media documentary, I think it's on Netflix, but our phones, because they have that front-facing camera, they literally can watch your eyeball and where it goes, and they know where your eyes are focusing on the screen. So you're right, that consciousness of saying, like, oh, the phone is literally watching me look at this thing. If I don't want to look at it and see more of it, then I should not. And yeah, that process is exhausting, and the more you uh, do it, you're like, do I really need to? Do I need to? Yeah. yeah. I, what I found is if you can just, if you can imprison yourself, and and, and I, I say this as first world problems, like if you can just deal without something for 10 days, like take social media off your phone for 10 days. And I call that like, that's like prison for us. Like, what are we going to do now? You, the first, the first seven days are going to be miserable. Mm-hmm. Like, Day eight, you're going to be all right. Yeah. Day nine, mm. 
And actually by day 10, like you're not going to need it. It's not going to be that big of a deal. But if you get your phone on day 11, you're going to be right. Like if you're not conscious of it, you'll be right back in that same always checking your phone mentality. Yeah. Well, the, the phones have been structured around our sort of our addictive responses and they know very well how the human brain works and it's, you know, it's catered to that. So just being They're aware good. of it can help. Excuse the interruption, ladies and gentlemen, but I just want to take a brief moment to thank our sponsors for this podcast. First off, Jolly Good, the title sponsor of this podcast. It's it's the only soda I'm drinking. Okay, where do you get it? Go to any of your grocery stores and just ask the manager if you can't see it out on the racks and whatnot. You got that Jolly Good soda or no? And if they says or no, then say, well, you know, you really should. I don't want to be rude, but, you know, maybe consider it, you know, and then maybe they'll consider it. You can also, if you can't find Jolly Good at your local grocery store or if you're out of uh, the Midwest, you can just go to JollyGoodSoda.com, order it right off the website. Also, I want to thank Duluth Trading Company. I wore, uh, I, I told you at the beginning of this podcast that... I, I did the shoot with Leroy on Lambeau Field. It was freezing out. I was wearing a bunch of Duluth stuff, and uh, I, I was able to stay warm, as warm as you can on the frozen tundra. Okay, so, you know, that should honestly be Duluth's tagline. It'll keep you as warm as you can be on the frozen tundra. I had uh, their jacket on, uh, their pants. Actually, I got these really cool... <laughs> I got these really cool camel cargo pants uh, the, of the fire hose variety, which I really like. And uh, they allow you to, you know, be flexible and everything. And I did the jump in them. And I did not succeed in the jump, I'll be honest, but it had nothing to do with the pants. It had everything to do with my lack of athleticism. I actually crashed right into the wall. And uh, um, I, I know that sounds like, oh, yeah, you did that on purpose, Charlie. No, I did not. Anyway, I looked really good doing it in my Duluth trading attire. Okie dokes. Oh, and if you want to get any Midwest stuff, I'm talking Ope shirts, keeper moving shirts, tell your folks I says hi shirts, koozies, dice cups, the whole deal, uh, fishing lures. Check it out. We've got it at cripescast.com. Just click on the merch section and you can get all that stuff. It's a great Valentine's Day gift. Nothing says I love you like Grandpa Bob's Tackle Box. I'm telling you that right now. I don't care if they fish or no, okay? You've been doing this now for um, for a little while. Where are you hoping to take it now? And how has it changed since um, the initial things you've done in the aftermath of George Floyd? How has it changed over the past several months? So I started speaking with students and then uh, started speaking at a number of schools. And then I started speaking to corporations and I decided I was going to I was going to stop speaking at schools, but then I realized there there's no one speaking to students about these issues. And I'm, I'm leading these diversity trainings with adults, educators, like people with PhDs. And they're just so weird and awkward around the conversation about race culture. And it hit me. I was like, oh, these people are awkward because no one spoke to them about this when they were kids. Mm. And I'm like, who is speaking to our kids about this? So we say that high school is supposed to prepare our kids for college and college is supposed to prepare, prepare them for a future financially. How are you preparing your students to go off to college if you're not teaching them about different cultures and how to interact effectively with people of different cultures? So I started going back to schools and just speaking about cultures and speaking about different, because I've been to all these different countries and I've learned about all these different cultures and customs. 
And I just let students know that these things exist and they're different. They're not wrong. They're different. Right. Because culture is a way of life. There's no right or wrong. Yeah. And you're in a unique position where you've uh, spoken with kids, with adults, you know, on the corporate level, on the elementary, high school level. What are these? Are there similarities be between the two like that, that you're seeing? Yeah. I, I, one thing I noticed is our the students, they are so comfortable and they will ask questions that they won't hesitate if they have a question. The adults have the same questions, but they're afraid to ask. Ah, so you feel like maybe you get to a point in life where you should know this already and now you're afraid to get clarification. So here's an example. So, and this has happened to me before. I will be in a store and a little boy will see me or a little kid will see me, a white kid, and they'll say, mommy, mommy, he's black. And I'm like, so what, what does a mom do in that situation? They'll be like, will you shut, shut up, just shut up. We'll talk about this in the car, right? Yeah. So you're teaching the kid from an early age that it's bad to see race or see color or see anything different. Right. The way you, and now the way I would handle that, and I say that as uh, as a person who I don't have any kids, but I would say, oh yes, he is black. Like some of our neighbors are black and you're going to see people of different shades and they're going to be different, beautiful people of different colors your entire life. We don't have to scare them away from noticing differences. And I think that's where we're at right now. Yeah. It's like we we've been so taught to ignore race because it's rude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh that's that's a great example. Do you have uh, maybe other examples like that that especially on the corporate level maybe that they they've been afraid uh to ask about or to go into? One of the big ones is uh they they're not sure what to say with whether it's African American or or black. Yeah. Uh because some of them grew up knowing it was bad to call people black like back I guess back in the day. There's people grow up in different ways and different cultures. Yeah. I just try to let them know that if they do something wrong, it's not the end of the world. Just address your, the impact that you made. Uh huh. And how do you feel about, um, you know, people, uh, maybe they feel they don't want to ask because they feel like it should be on them to do the research, to figure it out. Where do you fall in that mentality? Would you say that, um, I mean, you're probably in a different category because you are literally going to these places to teach about <laughs> diversity and culture. Yeah. But, you know, if somebody has a question and they want to just ask it, is that OK or should it be like uh, you should do like a little bit of research to figure that out first and then maybe ask a more intelligent question on the issue? What, do you have any thoughts on that? I would say if you're going to ask someone a question, what is your relationship with the person you're asking the question? If you're asking your, your black friend that you know you grew up with, you, you're, you're super close with, or are you just asking your mailman? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at that point, it I, I can't think of a question that would be so hard you couldn't like Google. But also, being honest, also the internet. So... <laughs> You would have to take that with a grain of salt. Right. So I would say the best solution for any of this is exposure, like being around people that are different than you, like possibly go eat in a different neighborhood. That idea of exposure is, you know, we are living in a society where many cities are set up, you know, with the remnants of the redlining and um, housing acts that have been discriminatory. How can people actively uh, combat that, knowing that that is the reality, how can they actively combat that if, let's say, they are currently living in a uh, white neighborhood? 
go support some black businesses, go to a, uh, go to a, a black area and dine at a black restaurant. That's a way you can be exposed to a different culture. Mm -hmm. And it's delicious. Yes, it is. I'm sure in doing this that you've gotten sort of the same questions over and over again, or the, the same, you know, which ones do you think, okay, we should really get past these things, you know, like, like the saying black is, is one of them, you know? Yeah. Um, are are there a few other things like that, that, Hey, we let's really get past Uh, this, you know? Yes. So, uh, CRT. No one really knows what it is, but I I don't teach it. But there are a lot of people who think since I do, I, I speak about culture, uh, that I'm teaching CRT. And I'm like, no, it's two different things. I cannot give you a, a professional breakdown of what it is. Most people cannot give you a professional breakdown of what critical race theory is. I can tell you, I do not teach critical race theory. I do not believe to my knowledge they teach it in any schools that I've gone to speak at. I just think it's a talking point and it's it's just something that gets people riled up. So people click like and it comes up on your feed more often. But uh, I don't think it's a real problem in actual schools. It's just more of a social media problem. Right, right. It's like, yeah, I remember there was this one school or I think it was the Virginia governor's race where the guy, the Republican and kind of you know, went on this whole thing about not teaching that in the schools and they, they weren't even teaching it in the schools to begin with. I, I think that was the deal there. But if not, we've seen similar stuff like that um, around uh, the country. But I think that that's a good um, sort of example of like people don't want to have the conversation. I think that the underlying tone of that is people want to kind of like ignore race as it pertains to how society's been set up, but society has been set up with race in mind very much so in America. I saw a meme that explained critical race theory in a pretty cute way. Do you know who Ruby Bridges is? Uh, She was the the first black uh, student to be integrated into white schools. Yeah. Uh, So uh, the meme said critical race theory, the people who threw stones at ruby bridges don't want their grandchildren to know they threw stones at ruby bridges right right it's like if you ignore the reality of what got us here to here to i mean it's like those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it you know and um you know we've we've kind of seen that happen so is that um would you like to see the education uh, overhauled in schools across, you know, across the country. Cause right now relying on you coming in and doing this, you know, you're one, one fella, you know, and is there a way to like expand that in a way that you see productive that won't, you know, uh, divide people immediately? I would say that teachers are, teachers are expected to do so much. Uh-huh. They're expected to do so much. And I will give my suggestion, but this is in no way to to say anything bad about the the school system because they're just it's filled with great people in a somewhat outdated system. I do think they should update curriculum to be more relevant. I read a, a stat that six in so the kids who went to uh, first grade this year, graduating class of twenty thirty three. 60% of the jobs that are going to be available when they graduate don't yet exist today. So what are we teaching them? I think we should update a lot of 
from the school system, but I just think they're stretched thin. Yeah, and if it's not even just, you know, a lot are even just buying the resources they needed in the classroom. So to ask them <laughs> to do all this, is, it's incredible. Yeah, I and that's why I'm, I, I don't even like giving suggestions. Yeah, sure. I just feel like I feel like I'm talking because they try so hard and they're not appreciated. Yeah, I agree. Where are you based right now? Kansas City. And how do you like, uh, so you're in the Midwest. How is kind of, uh, what's the, a lot of people think, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the racism, obviously, historically in the South, in the U.S., but how do you think the Midwest uh, kind of compares to that in its, its, I know it's a big region or whatever, but uh, in your experience traveling around, what's the difference between race uh, relations, I suppose, in the Midwest as opposed to anywhere else? Uh, I would say the Midwest. So in New York, I'm, I was born and raised in New York, but I moved to Kansas City in 2008, and I just tell people I'm from Kansas City because I love Kansas City that much. It's great city. Uh, I love it here, except for the wintertime. They should just change that. Other than <laughs> that, it's good. But in New York, there's nothing passive about a New York of, a New Yorker's aggression. Right, right. But then you come to Midwest nice. Yep. And when everyone's already Midwest nice, it, it's hard to read people in the Midwest. So, and if it's hard to read people, it's hard to get close to them. So it's like people here, they're friendlier, they're physically closer, but emotionally distant. Ah, uh, interesting. Do you have an example of that? Everyone is so polite that you don't really know how they feel. Right. Like in New York, if someone's going to let you kind of let you know how they feel. Yeah. And then, you know, where you stand with them. But, uh, I do like how genuinely nice everyone is though. Right. So that is a positive about being here. Yeah. But do you think maybe we'd get farther if people were more connected to that, that element of, you know, their, their true feelings on something? Do you think we'd be able to kind of get somewhere farther? Nah, I, I wouldn't want them to, uh, <laughs> Because it's the reason why I love Kansas City. It's because right. I love the way the people are here. Right. And everyone's just so nice, even when they don't want them. Uh, so that's cool. And if if I don't like it, I could just move somewhere else. But yeah, that's that's why I'm here. That's great. What is your goal uh, right now with respect to bringing your message to whether it be uh, students or whether it be professionals, what what is your end goal with it? Uh, my end goal is to is to have people may have their own conversations. I believe like exposure is the only way, and actually talking about things instead of assuming what other people are assuming you're thinking. If we actually had conversations, uh, I believe I'll caveat this before I even say this. There's always going to be people on on the extreme, so right. there's always going to be like the overtly racist people they're going to be they're, they're going to be tiki torch people whatever mm. but the 99.99999% most people are genuinely believe they're being nice but again that's their intent and their intent might be different than their impact and if they had conversations with people they would learn that that's called perspective mm. so that would be perspective would be my takeaway perspective yeah and in doing these conversations that you hope you know more of us do I mean, it's kind of like a hard thing if you you know you're at a party or or just out to lunch or whatever. How do you have any recommendations on how to like jump into that in a uh, casual way? Oh, first, like let's say 
you have a question for like a black person, right? Mm-hmm. I would say, make sure they're your friend first. Mm-hmm. So treat them like a normal person and befriend them like you would befriend other people. Like take a look at the 10 friends that you have. Maybe if you see that they're, they're all like, if I, if I looked at my phone and all of my phones, all my friends were just Asian. And I'm like, well, should, I don't get a lot of different perspectives. I love culture. The coolest part about boxing for me was not the fighting. It was the fact that I got to go to all these different countries to learn about all these different cultures. I have friends from all over different places and I genuinely care about them as people, even if I don't know them. And I think if more people did that, we would have less issues, but I think everyone has their own problems. Yeah. Yeah. But, but even that very simple thing of looking at your top, top 10 people you call the most, you know, and saying, is there something similar here? And maybe I can do a little work expanding my uh, exposure, my um, to other cultures, other races. Yeah. What advice would you give to somebody who's inspired by the work that you've done and would like to do the same thing? Do you have any advice for how they could start? Start speaking? Yeah. Oh, uh, I would say first thing you want to do is figure out who and write it down you have to be able to write it down not because you can have these thoughts but your thoughts don't count be able to write down who you want to speak to be very specific don't just say girls or guys don't just say high schoolers be specific do you want to speak to inner city high schoolers do you want to speak to single mothers do you want to speak to single fi- whatever figure out who you want to speak to and what you want to speak to them about and once once you figure out those two uh, those are the two hardest things to figure out. Figure out. Yeah, uh, but then the rest kind of comes naturally from there. Is there anything of uh, you know? We're kind of coming to an end here, but is there anything that I didn't ask in this interview that you know you really wished I I would have, or if there there's something nobody ever asked that you wish I would have asked? You, well, I never even answered your question. What I wanted to do, uh, what my goal is with all of this. Oh yeah, uh, Th- yeah. Thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> Uh, I was like, that was a great question. Uh, so I started speaking at just gym classes, just to students, uh, when I was boxing and I didn't really want to become a boxer. I never really knew what I wanted to do, but boxing was, was pretty cool. And I can bring me places in life. And I started doing stand up in 2012 and I got to perform a lot because I had a lot of boxing fans. And if you can sell tickets, you get to perform. You don't right. have to be good. And I realized I loved doing stand-up, but I would perform it till like midnight and you make zero dollars. You just get a bar tab. And I'm like, not even drinking. So it just wasn't fitting into my lifestyle. But then when I was speaking at, at schools to students, I realized, oh, I can tell them the jokes. So I just had to clean up my jokes and I started doing stand-up to students and all of my jokes have a moral or a message. And I take that same uh, speaking style and I do that corporate keynotes and what i want to do is make a genre of almost a a comedy philosophy keynote there's there's a message there's a moral and there's there but there's humor uh and that's kind of where i'm going with this to make this conversation a more lighter conversation yeah yeah that is cool because i i think that i mean i obviously i do a lot of stand-up myself but it's like once you got people laughing they're sort of disarmed and they're able to listen more. And uh, yeah, not making it such a heavy thing 
it makes people also more eager to learn more because you make it lighthearted and fun. So are you doing that? Are you doing uh, clubs at all? Or could you see yourself doing clubs with it? Or would you stick to the schools and the businesses? Did you see uh, Hassan Minaj's homecoming? Yeah. I was so mad and so happy at the same time because for years, that's what I was like, this, the whole storytelling. Yeah. That is what I picture myself doing. And I do everything with slides. It's a part of the presentation where it's like there's a lot of misdirection and, and jokes that you could only understand if there's the physical reference. And that is what I picture doing like our shows. They're informational, but they're inspiring and they're funny. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I'm working towards now. That's cool. I, I mean, I don't think that that... Uh... It's not, I actually use some slides in, in my stuff too. I mean, I think that's a thing. If you do, uh, who else has done that? Uh, there've been a few uh, comedians that have used those elements too. And Russell right. Grant. Russell, yeah, he, he does that. Kevin Hart has done that. Yeah. So, the, but that's cool because it says, okay, this is an accepted thing in the comedy world. For a long time, they were like, oh, just straight stand up. So the fact that that is, uh, uh, an okay thing just makes it that much easier for you to do. So that that's pretty cool. I mean, that's in my mind more inspiring than than anything else that, that can happen. Yeah. It's hard to sell. It's it's yeah. hard to sell something that's not really a thing. Yet. That's not a thing. But yeah, that's cool, man. I love that. I love that. So that's that's where you'd love to take this. I guess lastly now is where can people uh, follow you and support you? Uh, you can follow me anywhere uh, at at Cam F. Awesome, C-A-M-F-A-W-E-S-O-M-E uh, on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram. I, I have a TikTok account, but I don't I, I don't make videos. Yeah. yeah. Soon enough, though. That's coming. No, I'm just, yeah. I just use it to look at conspiracy theories that I don't share with other people because I don't want them to think I'm weird. Everyone needs an account for that. <laughs> well, cool, man. Well, great talking to you. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, you bet. It was great meeting you. Be good. Take care. And that is it for this week's episode of the Cripes Cast. Make sure you follow Cam F. Awesome on Instagram. That's at Cam F. Awesome. Follow the Cripes Cast Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Everyone, keep her moving. Watch out for deer. Tell your folks I says hi. And as always, go Packers and f*** the Bears. Okie dokes. Bye-bye. So roll out the barrel and get the band brewing. Life's got you down, just keep her moving. It's on Wisconsin, the Badgers say it's the old Wisconsin Jubilee. You know, sometimes when you're ice fishing, you put your foot in the walleye hole and go ass over tea kettle and you think you're done. No, you gotta keep her moving. <laughs>